From the Center for a New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about pivotal moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Elon Goldenberg. Today, American diplomacy and Middle East peace. This week, CNAS and the Brookings Institution are releasing a new report titled Ending Gaza's Perpetual Crisis, with yours truly as one of the co-authors. The title of the report says it all. The situation is grim. People aren't talking much about negotiating in Middle East peace. Right now, Israelis and Palestinians seem as far apart as ever. Mahmoud Abbas said Palestinians are facing the most dangerous stage in their history after Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The Palestinian president added that Trump's actions... Things were very different 26 years ago. Political realities aligned to make multiple agreements possible. And at the center of it all was a guy from Australia, of all places. His name is Martin Indyk. I happen to know Martin very well, as our paths crossed later in his career. I was Martin's chief of staff at the State Department when he and Secretary of State John Kerry brought Israelis and Palestinians back to the negotiating table. But that's skipping ahead. Indyk's story of thinking about Middle East peace starts when he was just out of college. Well, I was... Um very taken by uh, international relations as an undergraduate. Mm. But the formative experience for me was I had just graduated and gone to Israel and was contemplating doing a PhD in international relations and was studying Hebrew and was going to do a, a master's at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem when the 1973 October Yom Kippur War broke out. The tanks joined a thousand other guns, pouring tons of high explosive onto the Barlev line, while an airstrike hit Israeli positions deep in Sinai. And so I was there in Jerusalem, kind of at ground zero uh, for that war. Close quarters, Jerusalem was in blackout, and I worked as a volunteer and, and moved down quite close to the front in Sinai. Screens from Israeli eyes. 8,000 Egyptian infantry began crossing the canal in rubber dinghies at midpoint between the forts. What are you doing as a volunteer at the kibbutz at that point? Um, sorting carrots. Uh, all the male population uh, of Israel of any reasonable age was off at the fronts. Um, the reserves were mobilized. The Israelis heard the call to arms on the radio and from rabbis in their synagogues. And they just had no no labor. And so we were just doing the tasks that the men would normally do. They were mobilized for like eight months or so. There was a real lack of labor for quite a long period of time. And um, I can uh, remember being struck in those days by two things. One, just the horror of war. Behind the front lines, Israel's general staff was in a state of near panic. Reserve units were being hastily mustered together, and battalions in the rear were rushed to the front. And uh, number two, the role that Henry Kissinger, as Secretary of State, played, first of all, in ensuring the resupply of Israel, and I was down in, in the Negev on a kibbutz listening to this massive um, C-5As uh, flying in to deliver tanks for Israel to prosecute the war. It was the American airlift of military equipment to Israel that finally convinced Sadat of the gravity of his position. Material losses had been... And then afterwards, as he 
applied his diplomacy to the effort first to get a ceasefire and then to get negotiations going. We will talk again tomorrow, and then uh, we will present uh, the minister's ideas uh, to the Syrians. And it deeply impressed me, I was an Australian student at the time, that the role of the United States was critical both in war and in peace. At this point, Kissinger is still a go-between since Syria and Israel refuse to meet face-to-face. It was kind of an epiphany, and I decided that I was going to kind of devote my life to uh, helping resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Eventually, you come to the United States. What inspires you to sort of move in that direction? You know, I'd really spent a lot of time focused on the international relations of the Arab-Israeli conflict, learning about it and writing about it, and and ended up serendipitously in uh, Washington and found myself engaged in a policy debate here that I never imagined was possible. And nobody asked, what is an Australian doing telling us how to run our foreign policy? Um, In fact, my accent turned out to be a great asset because I'm jumping ahead in the story, but... um, when I uh, met and had the opportunity to brief uh, Bill Clinton when he was running for president, the first thing he said to me was he liked my accent. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you meet Bill Clinton? Um, By that point, I was running the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which was a think tank which I had founded. And a friend of mine was uh, working with Clinton in his presidential campaign. And they needed somebody to uh, do the Middle East stuff, and he introduced me to Clinton. If you vote for Bill Clinton and Al Gore, there'll be a lot of nights when we work till 10 o'clock looking into your problems, your promise, your future, your America, building people up, not tearing them down, lifting people up. What was your initial impression of Clinton? Look, he was very smart and charismatic, charming, so I I pretty much fell in love from the get-go. Hillary was there in that first meeting. I remember it because she was quizzing me on Bibi Netanyahu and what was Bibi Netanyahu about. And I was giving my little kind of amateur psychological analysis and she was very taken by that. But uh, the most important uh, opportunity I had was in the heat of the election campaign. And Clinton had just come in from a rally. And he was all pumped up, red-faced, and piled up his plate with food. And he sat there eating away. He had a voracious appetite. And I told him, look, if you become president, you'll have the opportunity with Rabin to get four peace agreements in your first term between Jordan, Palestinians, Syria, and Lebanon. Because he has a mandate to make peace and... You'll have that opportunity. I just remember he stopped eating, he looked up, he looked at me and he said, I want to do that. And he was true to his word for eight years. He uh, was deeply involved from day one in in trying to achieve peace. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. (laughs) Um, Was this your first time meeting uh, Rabin as well or had you? No, I'd known Rabin quite well uh, Mm. from my days traveling to Israel, uh, taking people to Israel. So I I knew him fairly well. What was your impression of him? He was really smart, 
but reserved, very different to Clinton in that regard. Clinton was outgoing and uh, very engaging. Rabin was shy and reserved, but with a laser mind and a strategic thinker. I, military ID number 30743, retired general in the Israel Defense Forces in the past, consider myself to be a soldier in the army of peace today. He was always very impressive when he would do his, uh, his strategic review of the situation. I remember once sitting with him at dinner. He would have a double scotch on the rocks in a tall tumbler. The waiters always kept on filling up. Uh, he liked his scotch. And a cigarette in his mouth. And he would be eating, talking, smoking and drinking at the same time. It was an amazing performance. <laughs> and he was always brilliant. Well, that him and Clinton could do together with Clinton's reputation for eating. <laughs> well, they did build a very close relationship, but it wasn't on that basis. I think Clinton was quite intimidated by Rabin at first because he was this war hero, general, politician who had gone from fighting the Arabs to deciding to make peace with them. Then Clinton went through the experience of the Oklahoma bombing. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. That was his first really searing experience with terrorism. And I remember Rabin came to town maybe a, a month afterwards, and he praised him. I think very sincerely, for the way that Clinton had handled the Oklahoma bombing. We felt the blast in Oklahoma City in Jerusalem. The shock waves of this barbaric act were felt in our hearts and in our minds. Mr. President, we stand today shoulder with shoulder with the American people in total rejections of any kind. Of that was a moment I felt that transformed that relationship. Mm. They kind of had become equals in terms of politicians dealing with adversity, extreme adversity. I have been very concerned with how the children in Oklahoma City and indeed the children throughout America must be reacting to a horror of this magnitude. And my message to the children... At that point, that I think Clinton felt a lot thing. more comfortable with him. And I want to ask you, um, Oslo. The last-minute negotiations went on for a day and a half, non-stop. But when the haggard Norwegian mediator arrived in Tunis, he said he had the historic documents of recognition in his bag. The U.S. isn't really that engaged in the Oslo process, or at least in negotiating it originally in Norway. When do you start to hear something big is happening, we're going to actually yeah. have a breakthrough here. Yeah. So we were really engaged at the time in trying to keep the negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians that were occurring in Washington on life support. Mm -hmm. 
Arafat basically had control of this group of West Bank and Gazan Palestinians who were negotiating, and he was blocking them from doing anything because he had this negotiation with Rabin and Perez, unbeknownst to us. What we knew was there was some kind of track two negotiation going on in Oslo. So we knew something was going on, but we didn't take it seriously. I remember, though, very distinctly, we came back from a trip to Damascus to Jerusalem. This is Secretary of State Christopher, Dennis Ross, and myself. And then I remember sitting in the van as we waited for Christopher to get in the convoy. Dan Kurtz was looking at me and saying, you know, I just heard they have an agreement hmm. on the track two. Israeli cabinet ministers reported for duty today and prepared to write history. Inside this cramped government office, they officially recognized the PLO, transforming Yasser Arafat's organization from arch enemy to worthy partner and changing the political landscape of the Middle East. Palestinian friends, today may mark the end of our conflict. In our long days and nights, we all spoke with great love about our children. It is to them that we dedicate this document. We went off for summer holidays. I remember I went to Australia for my nephew's bar mitzvah. And uh, I'm down there and I get called by Dennis Ross. Hmm. And Dennis called me and said, you're going to have to come back because we're hosting a ceremony at the White House in 13 days. So it was like September 1st. Wow. So you better get back here. The path ahead will not be easy. These new understandings, impressive though they are, will not erase the fears and suspicions of the past. But now the Israelis and the Palestinians have laid the foundations of hope. So <laughs> I never got to go to my nephew's pub. It's right on the plane, came back. And I was thinking, you know, bloody hell. I was outraged that they'd done this behind our backs. And outraged at the thought that Yasser Arafat was going to be coming to the White House. Rabin's advisors didn't want him to go, wanted Perez to be the one to go and wanted to avoid Arafat being there as well. So it was going to be Perez and Abu Mazen, who was then Arafat's number two, Mm -hmm. uh, who were going to sign the agreement. And that's what we went in the first opportunity to brief Clinton. That's what I told him had been organized. And he said, well, I want to speak to Rabin. So we got Rabin on the phone, and Clinton says to Rabin, you know, this is such a big deal. I really think you need to be here. I'm listening. I'm in the Oval Office listening in on the speaker. And Rabin, instead of saying, no, 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 I'm sending Perez, says, well, that'll be difficult for you, Mr. President. I don't want to create difficulty for you. Clinton is looking at me, and he says, it won't be difficult for me. I think you need to be here. And Rabin says, no, 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 it'll be difficult for you. He says, no, you need to be here. He says, well, I don't know. So he gets off the phone, and he looks at me, and he's, he's, now he's angry. And he says, you told me he wants to send Perez. I'm telling you he wants to come. And you get on the phone and tell his people that the President of the United States wants him to be here. 
And I said, well, you know, that means that Yasser Arafat will be here. He says, they've got to be here. If they don't embrace it, it's not going to work. How, had you met Arafat before or no. worked with him? No. no. So this was your he first was on time. our terrorism list. Mm-hmm. There was law that prohibited any official contact with the PLO. And that was all done on Israel's behalf. And here, well, the Israeli prime minister was going off and making a deal with him. So we had to take him off the terrorism list in order to get him to the White House. As a result, and in light of this week's events, I have decided to resume the dialogue and the contacts between the United States and the PLO. The White House today, the Israeli and Palestinian leaders have signed an agreement setting in motion the second stage of their peace process. We are today giving peace a chance and saying to you and saying again to you enough let us pray what was negotiating Arafat like he was um, the artful dodger you could never pin him down he was quirky he was eccentric uh, he would wear this uh, safari uh, uniform. It wasn't a military uniform because he had no army. And he had little brooches that he, that he tried to put out there as medals. They weren't. That was, one was the Seeds of Peace uh, <laughs> brooch, I remember, make it look like he was a general. And he had pieces of paper in every pocket that he'd pull out on, on occasion. So. And he would you know, go off into these flights of fantasy where he would tell you that he was the engineer that built all the ports in Kuwait. He just seemed to be out of touch with reality. But he wasn't. It was all a performance on his part. He was a great actor. But on the other hand, he had the support of his people. He had the legitimacy that came from having put the Palestinian cause on the map through the terrorism that he was responsible for for in the 1960s and so he could make decisions and when you got him to make a decision it would hold but what was critical to him making that decision was a trust in the Israeli side and he had grown to trust Rabin partly because Rabin understood that Arafat had certain needs to support his legitimacy, including what Rabin called walking around money. So Rabin was quite content for Arafat to pick up funding from doing deals on concrete sales with Israelis. You know, Rabin turned a blind eye to that because he, he wanted Arafat to have some walking around money. What Arafat always used to refer to as, my money, my money. So he grew to trust Rabin. And when Rabin would send him an emissary to tell him, look, I've got a problem here. Politically, I need you to you know, not object to this settlement or this activity that I'm going to have to do that's going to hurt you. Arafat was ready to say, okay. He loved it, actually to be conspiring with Rabin. And so they helped each other politically. And in doing so, they, they built a relationship of trust. 
So then you go through the negotiations for a couple of years and you're making progress. Now, at this point, you're the ambassador to Israel. You've moved to Israel. Well, by that time, we already had the Oslo Accords, mm-hmm. which we had embraced, had Cairo Agreement, which provided for Arafat to come back to Gaza. And then we had the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty, which we helped to uh, negotiate and a big signing ceremony in the Wadi Arava. After almost half a century of animosity at best and three major wars, Israel and Jordan enthusiastically agreed to live in peace. So things were really moving at that point. And we were working quietly with Assad to get the Syria deal because Rabin had committed that he would withdraw from the Golan Heights. So that was all secret at the time, but we knew that we could taste it, (laughs) we thought, Mm. at the time. And Clinton sent me to Israel to work with Rabin on the Syria deal. In order for peace to be completed, it still lacks two people, the president of Syria and the president of Lebanon. And, you know, five months later, he's assassinated. Rabin had been at a rally of tens of thousands of his supporters, a rally called to say yes to peace, no to violence. Rabin had asked me not to come to the rally. So I I was at home. I was actually in a bath. I don't normally take a bath, but I'd gone with my son on a 10K run and I was really in bad shape. And Eitan Haber, his bureau chief, Rabin's bureau chief, called me on the phone and he just said to me, Rabin's been shot, meet me at Ikhilov Hospital and hung up the phone. The good-natured crowd was going home. Rabin stepped off the stage. A gunman slipped through and fired at point-blank range. Police have the apparent assassin in custody. He's described as a law student in his 20s and as affiliated with radical Jewish settlers. So I raced down to uh, the hospital, which was in the heart of Tel Aviv. I remember it really being quite eerie. There was no traffic. And I got in there and walked down to the basement where the emergency rooms were. And the first person I saw was Eitan Haber. And he was sitting at this booth uh, writing something. And I kind of said, Eitan, you know, and he wouldn't look up, nothing. And then another political aide of Rabin's came up to me and embraced me. And he said, Rabin's dead, kind of whispered to me, Rabin's dead. So that's how I found out. Eitan was writing the announcement. He then went out two minutes later and announced to the world that Rabin had been assassinated. Evening spent dreaming of peace turns into a national nightmare. And there was just one phone there. And I was uh, trying to get a line. I hung up the phone. Suddenly it rings. And I pick up the phone. It's the White House situation room. And they got the president calling, not for me, but for somebody. He just wanted to speak to somebody. So I got on the phone with him and I said, would you like to speak to Leah? And he said, yes. So I kind of carried her over to the phone. And I just remember her picking up the phone and saying, Bill, she said, the idiot, the idiot, the idiot. 
he shot oh, Yitzhak. And Clinton said, I'll be there. I'll be there for the funeral. Then he went out and he made this statement. The world has lost one of its greatest men, a warrior for his nation's freedom, and now a martyr for his nation's peace. Uh, and he was choking up. He said these words that will always be associated with him in the minds of Israelis is Shalom Haver, goodbye friend. Because words cannot express my true feelings, let me just say Shalom Haver. I thought that really captured the deep admiration and affection that Clinton had for Robin, and therefore a very, really profound commitment after Robin's assassination to do whatever he could to preserve the peacemaking legacy of his Javier, his friend. Wow. Yeah. And now that you look back at it, do you think we would have had Israeli-Palestinian peace if he hadn't? You know, I was at first convinced that we'd gone so far already that it was irreversible. With Perez taking over, you know, it just felt like we'd be able to move on. So I was in denial for a long time uh, about the impact it would have. Uh, it was only once Netanyahu won the elections, which took place a few months later, and he won by half of 1% of the vote. But he campaigned against Oslo. As head of the conservative Likud party... Netanyahu himself became the face of the opposition to Oslo. Uh, Netanyahu said he would live up to the commitments made by the previous government, even though he had run against the Oslo Agreement. And he met with Arafat. The Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Chairman Arafat will speak and they will uh, say a few words and after that they will uh, take over. the head of the White House uh, a few months later and, and negotiated two agreements with Arafat. I can observe that both parties reiterate... Their commitment to the interim agreement. But it was really, really heavy going. We were, in effect, dragging him, kicking and screaming. However, I'd like to emphasize that we have to take into account the needs and the requirements of both sides on the basis of reciprocity. And uh, just doing our best to keep the process alive until, out of the blue, after Netanyahu does the why agreement with Arafat, in which Clinton managed to persuade him to give up a whole 13% of the West Bank. <laughs> and his government collapsed. Um, the right wing brought his government down. His own coalition, the uh, coalition of the Russians, the uh, Orthodox, actually turned against him. And uh, we had elections and suddenly Barack is elected. I hope that we are at the first step for a unity, change, and new hope for Israel. Uh, and we've got a new chance. Barack is determined to finish the deals with the Palestinians and the Syrians, and therefore the Lebanese. Syrians controlled Lebanon in those days. And we've thought, here's our second chance. I'm very glad that Barack is going to be our prime minister of Israel because I think he's going to change a lot of things in this country, especially in the peace with the Arab country and peace in, inside the country. Barack, like Rabin, wanted to try to do the Syria deal first. So he went off and worked very hard on that. And it's important 
for people to remember this because I think conventional wisdom is now solidified around the idea that at Camp David, we came close to an Israeli-Palestinian deal and that when we failed on that, that that was the end of the peace process. But in fact, um, where we really came close was not on the Palestinians because we didn't have a workable solution on refugees or on Jerusalem Mm. at Camp David. Where we really came close was with the Syrians. Not as far apart as they have been. So that's the good news. Assad, coming to the end of his life, decided he was going to do the deal. This Sent is Hafez, not Bashar. Yes, this, this is, is the father. Bashar's father. Uh, Hafez al-Assad. He decided he, he wanted to do the deal. He sent his foreign minister to Washington to negotiate with Barak. We had this intense uh, uh, negotiation at Shepherdstown. I think they broke a lot of ground, but it's tough. I told you it was tough in the beginning. I still think we can get there, but they're going to have to come back here determined to do so. And, and then I, a I meeting, a summit meeting between Clinton and Assad in, I think it was April of 2000 in Geneva when Barack offered full withdrawal from the Golan Heights. I'd prepared a map with him of what the line would look like. There were some minor adjustments that all the security arrangements and the normalization arrangements were all in place. It was only a matter of getting Assad to say yes and he... I think he felt at that time it was too late. And he said no. He died a few months later. One of the region's longest serving leaders, Assad died Saturday at his home in Damascus after battling heart trouble for years. He was 69 years old. Funeral services are planned for Tuesday. Assad's death raises serious concerns about Syria's stability and the future of the Mideast peace process. For three decades, President Hafez al-Assad played a critical role in the Middle East. His passing doesn't alter the compelling logic for all parties to pursue a comprehensive peace, nor America's willingness to work with all parties to achieve that goal. And when we failed there, that put Clinton and Barack in the situation in which they started to run after Arafat. Arafat had gone from a situation in which he thought Assad was going to make a deal. And if Assad had made a deal, Syria had made peace and Lebanon would have followed, then Arafat would have been left chasing uh, for what he could get. Instead, when we failed with Assad, he was in the catbird seat. And that changed the whole political dynamic completely. So then we do move on to Camp David, the last sort of final hurrah, at least in this effort in the 90s or 2000s at that point. Why this summit and why now? While while Israeli and Palestinian negotiators have made real progress, crystallizing issues and defining gaps, the truth is they can take the talks no further at their level. What's it like preparing for something like that? You know, I mean, in, in retrospect, do you think it was a good idea or did we sort of push it too soon? There's all kinds of different arguments that are made about this question. Well, uh, time was running out for both Clinton and Barack. There'd been some months of final status preparations. But, you know, when you look back at it, none of the parties were really ready, and that included us. 
uh, we were touching issues that had been long postponed and never really seriously considered. Barak came at Camp David and offered to give up the Arab suburbs of Jerusalem. We thought that was absolutely stunning. We thought maybe we could get one or two Arab suburbs uh, for the Palestinians. But he was ready to give them all up. We thought that was huge. Well, it didn't even come close to solving the problems of, of Jerusalem. Where were you when you sort of realized this is going south and this is, this is not going to end well? Arafat was looking for an exit. So he drove the negotiations to Jerusalem, basically said to Clinton and Barak, we can work out the other things, security, territory, refugees, if we can get a solution on Jerusalem. The hardest, most uh, complicated and symbolic issue. And so we went off and started to try to figure out how we'd come to a solution on Jerusalem. And it was then that I realized, at least, the two sides are very, very far apart on this one. And we'd had to decide before going into Camp David that we were going to go for something less than a deal, full deal. But Barack was insistent on a full deal. Clinton wanted a full deal. And there was no way, in retrospect, that we could have gotten a full deal, but... That's what we went for. Having gone for it, it was no way that we could drop back to something less than that. This is one of the photos in the New York Times from Camp David yesterday. No deal, says the cut line. Ehud Barak of Israel, President Clinton and Yasser Arafat in a subdued mood yesterday at Camp David as their summit meeting concluded without an agreement. Gary Ackerman is our guest, Democrat from New York. Mr. Ackerman, good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm doing fine. When you see a picture like this, participants hardly looking at each other, if not at all, as things ended. Uh, what does that make you think? Well, first they look uh, exhausted. They look like uh, they had wanted to do something and, and they're kind of depressed about it not happening. That sounds actually somewhat similar to some of our experiences in 2013 and 14. It seems like a constant dynamic. The second you signal as the mediator that we're pulling back and we're not going for the full deal, both the parties are like, okay, that sounds a lot easier. Let's go there. And so you're sort of stuck going for it all and swinging for the fences. There's a much higher likelihood that you strike out at that point. Exactly right. Yeah. But then if you don't swing for the fences, you're mired in interim deals that by the time that we got involved uh, in 2013 – the whole idea of interim steps, small steps, would be completely discredited as well. The Arab League has backed U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry's push to revive Israeli-Palestinian peace talks at a meeting in Jordan. Israel needs to look hard at uh, this initiative, which promises Israel peace with 22 Arab nations and 35 Muslim nations, a total of 57 nations. I think that the mistrust was so great between leaders and between people, that the whole process of, like, arteries hardening had just become really impossible. What is it like working with John Kerry as opposed to Bill Clinton, having a different champion who's trying to lead this effort, again, with, I think, full energy? Yes, John Kerry is like the energizer bunny. He's, he's just going the whole time. We all appreciate... Believe me, we appreciate the challenges ahead. If sheer willpower and determination 
was enough to do the deal, we would have gotten the peace. But unfortunately, you need leaders, Israeli and Palestinian leaders, like Yitzhak Rabin or Anwar Sadat, who are not only willing to take risks, have the courage to take risks, but also have the political savvy to bring their people along with them. Without that, you know, American mediators can't succeed. With that, peace is possible. I think everyone involved here believes that we cannot pass along to another generation the responsibility of ending a conflict that is in our power to resolve in our time. They should not be expected to bear... That's Martin Indyk, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel. Our conversation with him coincides with an important event here at CNAS. As this week, we're releasing a new report with the Brookings Institution on how to address the perpetual crisis in Gaza. On the next episode of Stories from the Back Channel, after 9-11, CNAS senior fellow Paul Shari was an army ranger scouting the mountains of Afghanistan when his team encountered a young girl with a two-way radio. She had been sent by the Taliban to report back on their position. One of the things that I can tell you never came up was the idea of shooting this little girl. That was not a topic of conversation. But what might a machine have done? If you programmed a machine to comply with the laws of war, it would have killed this little girl. Now, I think that would be morally wrong, even if it were legal. I I don't think that's consistent with American values or the values that I was brought up with or the folks on my team. But I think it raises this challenging question of, you know, how would machines know the difference between what's legal and what is right? What autonomous weapons means for the future of our military and the world on the next Stories from the Back Channel, coming next Tuesday.